Heavenly Father, we pray now that even as we hear more about the works of the flesh and sin, that our despair at our own sinfulness and at not being able to accomplish anything on our own would quickly point us to the goodness of Jesus, to the fact that there is a hope, that he is our only hope, that he's freely given to all who trust in him. And I pray that he would be glorified and we would even be comforted as we are warned away from those false comforts that would cause us to rest in ourselves so that we might put our eyes more singly and wholly on Christ alone. Pray this in his name. Amen. We turn again to Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. See the list that Paul calls the works of the flesh. And you'll remember this is a list of evidences, evidence of living according to the flesh. Paul is showing that this evidence can be found in anyone who lives under the control of the flesh, whether that means indulging your flesh or proving your holiness according to how you can regulate and control your flesh. Any religion, any false gospel, any idea of how to live that roots your assurance, your rest, your sense of who you are and what is coming to you in how you handle worldly things is living according to the flesh. And eventually, these gospels of self-assurance will lead us to give evidence that we are living a fleshly life, whether we start proudly showing this evidence or hypocritically trying to hide it. Paul wants us to see this evidence so that we can trust wholly in a gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, so that through that gospel, we can even enjoy the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. This gospel of grace is not only the only way to be justified, assured that you're right with God, but it is actually the way that we can start showing not the evidence of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit. So let's return this week to that list of works of the flesh so we can see the failure of living according to it or trying to boast in it so that we might put our hope in Christ alone and walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, last week, we broke this list roughly into four categories, and we focused on sexual sins. The next three, which are going to consider this week, uh, might be called mysticism, division, and excess. We're going to use mysticism here to sum up idolatry and sorcery. The word idolatry can have both a broad and a narrow meaning. When God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, The first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. That command is all-encompassing, right? We find the other commands in it. It reflects what Jesus considered to be the heart of the law and the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
In a sense, then, an idol is anything that we put before God, anything we love apart from God, whether that's a statue of Baal or a shrine or your family, your work, your home and possessions, all of that can be an idol. This makes idolatry a foundational sin. It's a condition of the heart out of which all other sinful actions might spring. But I think there's also a narrow definition of idolatry, and that corresponds with the second commandment. God follows up. You shall have no other gods before me by saying in Exodus 24 to 6, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In this more narrow meaning, idolatry is going to focus specifically on taking things, stuff, objects in God's creation and turning them into tools for reverence and worship, imbuing them with spiritual power. Now, the word sorcery comes from the Greek word pharmakeia. And whether or not we should have to, we need to get something out of the way straight away, which is that this word has absolutely nothing to say about present-day pharmaceutical companies. Nothing to say about medicine. Scripture does have things to say about medicine. Paul traveled with Luke, the author of Scripture, and he calls him the beloved physician. Jesus compares sin in our hearts with sickness. He calls himself the physician. Paul even tells Timothy, take wine for your health. He tells him, take the things that God has made in creation and apply it for the good of your body. When we want to know what God thinks on a subject, we must get out not just our terms, but our meaning and our context from the scriptures itself. Trying to import a present day meaning into a biblical word even when that meaning contrasts with other scriptural evidence, clearly shows that we are reading the meanings we want into scripture rather than getting them out of scripture. As a comparable, did you know that the Greek word for power, dunamis, is the root word for dynamite? Would you be prepared to say that when Paul's preaching in Acts 10, says God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with dunamis, that he is implying that Jesus was anointed in dynamite. It is clear that anyone who treats scripture this way, using the Bible to say whatever they desire, is going to use God's word to enslave their hearers to new rules and regulations in the exact way Galatians warns against. So let's just not fall for any of that trickery. The reason that pharmakeia, their word for sorcery, morphed into what we would talk about, uh, what we would use to talk about pharmaceuticals or pharmacies, is that one of the main tasks of sorcerers in that day was to mix potions, combining ingredients, not for medicinal properties, but for their magical properties to achieve supernatural ends. So when Paul puts idolatry and sorcery together, we see that he's looking at the way we are tempted to take natural things the ingredients of a potion, the stuff of an idol, and treat them as though they are imbued with supernatural power, which we can access and use and handle. In our present culture, 
where the chief opponent of Christianity appears to be atheism and materialism. Christians are used to being called superstitious and mystical. But when Christianity first started to take hold in the Roman Empire, what was the main accusation against the Christians? That they were atheists. People in that day were so used to idolatry and sorcery. They were so used to seeing gods and spirits behind every corner and imbuing every object that when you looked at these Christians with their belief in a God that ruled over all things that we could not see, who governed creation according to natural laws and logic, that seemed anti-spiritual. That seemed atheistic. Because we believe that God did make this world in his sovereignty, according to his perfect design, Christianity doesn't need superstitions and magic to recognize spiritual or divine realities in the world around us. This whole world, as it is, is God's world, made according to his design. It's working according to his constant care and providence. That's science. And logic, which governs our world, is a testimony to God's perfect design. And those special instances that we find in Scripture where God performs supernatural work are meant to be signs that he's doing something special. Signs that this is the one acting who set in motion those ordinary processes who ran the world according to his design, those special instances where we could see him doing something in particular. When Jesus calms the storm, what's he showing? He's showing that he is the God governing the world when the storms are working according to their natural, normal way. The materialists of our day are going to say that these scientific, logical rules, these processes, are somehow evidence that the world is running on its own without God. That somehow, the more complex and sophisticated we discover that the world is, the more it somehow proves that it doesn't have a designer. But in our insecurity, many Christians start to, in a sense, agree with that criticism. Because we go looking for special extra evidence of spiritual and supernatural things. We adopt superstition. We adopt mysticism. So we can feel like the world is more spiritual. So we can feel like God is real and is in control. We start talking about manifestations of angels. Hearing voices, gods or otherwise. We even start to talk about things like energies and laws of attraction. Bringing in these concepts from other religions and new age philosophy. This makes us feel more secure against the accusations of the atheists around us. Now we have the evidence that we wanted. That God exists. We believe that we have touched, seen, felt these spiritual realities. The world is not just rules and logic and science running like a machine. This is how mystical practices often find their way into Christian life and worship. False gospels will often make use of mysticism and spirituality as ways to grant fleshly boasting, a fleshly sense of assurance, so we can set apart who the super holy Christians are, the ones who can access these spiritual realities. Because our flesh finds it easier to put our confidence in what we can 
feel, and touch. It's easier for our emotions to be stirred by these objects, to interact with these objects. So worshiping icons and making use of worldly things to feel closer to God becomes this regular temptation for us. The Roman church split with and condemned the Eastern church because it was saying that the icons of the saints were imbued with special spiritual power, that they were portals to the divine. But then the Roman church itself started making use of so many statues, sculptures, works of art in its worship. You can also look in church history and find so many cases of syncretism with the mysticism of the cultures around us. Voodoo, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Kenosis Prayer. All of these are examples of Christianity looking for mystical realities for worship so we can feel more secure in these spiritual truths. The tangibility of these superstitions is going to make you feel like you are living a more religious life. You seem to be interacting with the supernatural elements of this world. They make us feel like we must be in a right relationship with God, that we must be living a holy life. But these are fleshly ways of gaining assurance. They are boasting in your flesh. And they lead you away from rather than towards how God has revealed himself in his world. In fact, these mysticisms so often lead to universalism. Because now that you are looking for evidence that someone is living a holy life apart from the Bible, you will start finding it in people who do not live according to the Bible. How can I condemn that Muslim, that Hindu, when they are experiencing the same spiritual realities that I just said was evidence that somebody was a faithful Christian? God's word says that God has drawn near to us. God has indeed made himself known through this world he's created. He created those rules and laws of our world so that he could reveal himself and his glory through them. He gave us language and writing so that he could communicate his truth to us. He gave us our senses to witness, our minds to contemplate these realities. He gave us sacraments through which our senses could help us to know and rest in what his word declares. All of these means are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the spiritual reality, but they are ordinary. The Spirit works through the world that God created, ordinary and spiritual. Supernatural mysticism, idolatry, sorcery is not satisfied with how God has drawn near to us. To paraphrase Romans 10, it seeks to go up, to climb up to get where God is, or to go down to get where God is, to use his creation to perform actions so we can feel assurance through what we have done. Listening prayer, superstition, using images and videos to cajole our emotions in worship, even when we really manipulate music to create an emotional response. These are all ways that we can compensate for our own dissatisfaction with the way that God has drawn near to us. And so our flesh becomes the foundation of our assurance. 
You may feel like you're a stronger Christian because you are setting yourself apart from those materialists and atheists in the world around you with your supernatural experiences and mystical practices and talk about supernatural things. But these are not the means of assurance that God has given you or told you to seek. They are not how he has drawn near to you. They will leave you looking more like the idol worshipers of the Old Testament than like one of God's people. So rest in what God has accomplished. Rest in how he has drawn near to you in Christ. Christ is a good shepherd. He has given us all we need to lead and safely guide us to the Lord all our lives. The next grouping of works of the flesh we find on Paul's list might be called sins of division or sins of hatred. Paul lists enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, divisions, dissensions, and envy. These sins are interpersonal. They are sins that we commit in relation to others. And these evidences of the works of the flesh are often the ones that most reveal our hypocrisy. Because those other sins on this list, they feel so fleshly to us. Oh yeah, those are the works of the flesh. Sexual sins, drunkenness, sorcery. When someone's ensnared by these sins, we all know they're a sinner. The evidence is clear. You cannot deny it. Those sins feel serious to us. They are the sins that we're regularly warned about that we're regularly worried about, that we are often able to point out. However, the way that we see those sins, those fleshly sins, those bodily sins, often leaves us looking at these interpersonal sins, sins related to hatred and division, and seeing them as being of a lesser category. They're the less dangerous sins. They're more mistakes, personality quirks, bad habits. When we're guilty of these sins, we're less concerned about what they mean for our relationship with the Lord or our hope in the gospel. You know, I'm just a little bit argumentative. I just like to push. Just a bit of a grinder. You know, I have a little bit of a problem with gossip. When I talk about other people, I, I want to just speak more positively. I can be a little bit jealous, you know, when I see things that other people have, I don't really like that. For some of us, it might be surprising to find these sins on this list. Strange to see envy and division and dissension sandwiched between the real sins, like sexual immorality and drunkenness. And therein lies the warning. It is often our complacency regarding these sins we commit against each other which turns us into those hypocritical Christians that even the Gentiles, even the world around us can see. The Christians that they lambaste and mock in movies and television who are so proud of their holiness in other areas while their hearts are filled with hatred and division. The confidence we place in our flesh means we devote extra time to regulating and boasting in how we handle things like sexual sin or alcohol, totally ignoring or giving license to how we treat each other. If we feel like we're doing well in our battle against sorcery, sexual sin, drunkenness, then we are complacent and dismissive towards whether we have hated and ignored each other. 
whether we've envied each other's possessions, whether we want to look better than others, whether we're angry when we're not appreciated enough, when we lose our temper, or even just become rude and self-involved in all of our interactions and conversations, making everything about us. Martin Luther says this in his commentary on this passage. The scholastics, monks, and others of their ilk fought only against carnal lust and were proud of the victory, which they never obtained. In the meanwhile, they harbored within their breasts pride, hatred, disdain, self-trust, contempt of the word of God, disloyalty, blasphemy, and other lusts of the flesh. And against these sins, they never fought because they never took them for sins. Paul wants us to recognize that these sins belong on this list. They belong with what Luther calls the carnal lusts. Indulging in these interpersonal sins is evidence that we are living according to the flesh. Getting together with others to gossip and criticize. Sowing division in your church by constantly speaking negatively about its members. Envying and despising others when good things happen to them. That is letting your flesh have its way with you. This is the kind of fleshly sin that destroys fellowship and ruins churches. This appears to be the sin that was running rampant in Galatia. The desire to prove their holiness by their works had led to divisions and rivalries. Jews were feeling insecure eating with Gentiles. People competed to look the most holy in the church. These are often the sins that you see most reaping havoc in churches that have abandoned the gospel. Liberal churches also, right, like to talk about their holiness in areas like sexual sin and the works of the flesh, even if they have a totally opposite view of them. But while they focus on those fleshly gospels, you often hear that life in those churches is one of competition and division, warring committees, Not to mention the growing number of people who call themselves Christians but cannot or will not commit in a lasting way to the church. They go from one church to another to another. Dissatisfied with every Christian they meet. Or they give up Christianity and the church entirely. Or they try and give up the church without Christianity they cannot seem to join a body of believers with starting out starting to get dissatisfied starting to talk about what's going wrong in all of their churches what the other christians aren't doing properly what they don't like here eventually they start to feel fine when the fact that when they think about these people all they feel is hatred it is growing increasingly common to say that oh i'm just a part of the whole church Or to say that you love Jesus, but don't love the church. Can you love the head of Christ and not his body? Can you love the man and hate his wife? I love Jesus. I just hate being in his house. God's word continually points out sins of hatred and division and points them out as serious. Jesus shocked his listeners when he said that those who hated others were committing murder in their hearts. Paul tells Titus, as for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. John warns his readers this way, 
By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And what does that mean? Nor is the one who does not love his brother. And John is looking at those who cannot commit in love and faithfulness to others in the church. It may be that you are content that you are a very holy Christian because you have got all your bodily sins under control. But you are content living selfishly. You are content with discord. You are content with envy. You are content with thinking poorly and hating members of your church or your family or your work. Friends, treat these sins like you have treated addiction and perversion. Be eager to repent, to seek the help and the means of the spirit. I've been hating others in the church. I haven't loved God's family. I'm addicted to slander, to gossip, to belittling others. I envy and despise when good things happen to other people. I do not love the church. These are very easy sins for the flesh to fall into. And we must depend on nothing less than the sanctification of the spirit to free us from them. The final class of sins which Paul lists are sins of excess. Paul uses the terms drunkenness and orgies. An orgy in Roman times was a party where every kind of excess was enjoyed, where the party kept going and going and going. Yes, there was sexual excess and every kind of perversion, but there was also drunkenness, eating yourself sick, partying to exhaustion. Here we are being warned against taking what God has created and enslaving ourselves to the pleasure of those things without any self-control until our excess has twisted them into something wicked. We saw last week how worshiping sexuality not only creates this problem of overindulging it, but it twists it into perversion. This happens with so many of the things that God has made good in creation. In our very affluent culture, where we have a very high bar for seeing somebody as living for pleasure, an excessive love of what pleases us and fills us has become very common. Gluttony, drunkenness, recreational drug use, excessive consumerism, Even addiction to the very simple pleasures like our smartphones, our video games, our television shows, that is commonplace now. That's taken for granted as just a normal part of life, right? This is what people live for. They live for their pleasures. Work as little as possible so you can be pleased as often as you desire. We become increasingly lazy, addicted to our pleasures, letting them get in the way of our relationship with the Lord, our church, our children, our spouse, letting them become our deepest sense of who we are, defining ourselves by what pleases us. In a sense, we are returning here to the broad definition of idolatry, which takes anything that God has made good and makes it into our master. Adam was told, Rule over creation. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then he bowed to the elements of creation rather than ruling over them. He took the advice of a snake. He just couldn't resist 
that one forbidden piece of fruit. And since then, this has been so deeply knit into all of our sin. We worship creation rather than wanting to steward it wisely. We pervert and abuse the gift and thus despise the giver. Like sexual sin, the prevalence of overindulgence in our culture, in its pleasures, often makes this the focus of our changes to the gospel. When we no longer want to be licentious, when we want to boast in our flesh, we focus on these sins as a way to get self-assurance. Either we give special license to our excesses, or we overly restrict what God has made good. Prosperity gospel says a lifestyle of consuming pleasures and living for them is evidence that God has blessed you. This false gospel, which tells you, go ahead, overindulge your pleasures. It's so tempting that it has produced all of the most successful false teachers in the world. Joel Osteen, Paula White, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, Stephen Furtick, they might say something different from day to day, but what they all share is that they are focused on allowing us to overindulge in the gifts God has made to perversion, to neglect and even hate the giver because we call that overindulgence in pleasure a blessing from God. On the other side, once again like sexual sin, this has led to a reactionary movement that adds extra rules to starve the flesh and prove our holiness by rejecting the things that God has made good saw in Jeremiah's warning that the problem isn't just the sins people are committing, it's that then they want to boast in the flesh. And how often do those go hand in hand? This was true of monastic movements. Men putting on displays of their hunger and their poverty. A recent Christian community movement is largely devoted with swearing off possessions as a reaction to consumerism. Some people feel guilty when they say that they enjoy things in God's world. I'm sorry I went to a restaurant when I should have been reading my Bible. I'm sorry that I went to the theater when I should have been praying. Perhaps the clearest example in our own culture of this behavior was the church's activism against alcohol through the previous century. It took wine something that God made good and even included in the Lord's Supper and said, the only way to handle this wisely is not to handle it at all. The only holy answer to excess is to forbid. At the very least, the super holy people are recognizable as the ones who don't drink. Like movements that swore off sex entirely, this led to a reactionary movement of secret excess and overindulgence as men were taught that there were only two ways to deal with alcohol, to cut it off or to live for it. This lingering sense in the church that alcohol can only be worshipped, so it must be forbidden, led, I think, to a funny kind of backlash particularly in churches where alcohol was never forbidden, and as people come into, typically, the Reformed tradition. Now you take extra pride in knowing that here alcohol is not forbidden. Yes, I'm here for the doctrines. Yes, I'm here because you love the word and because everything is based on the scriptures. But I'm, I'm also really interested in this culture we're forming where we talk a lot about beer, and pubs and bars, and those become the icons of our movement. 
There's this thrill in taking part in this thing that you were taught was once forbidden, that was so strongly prohibited. And now I can parade my freedom proudly in front of the Christians and the churches that disagree like a badge of honor. Friends, whether we are proud of abstaining from what God has made good or whether our pride is in having it, we are judging ourselves by what we handle and taste and touch. Even our freedom can become slavery, says Paul, if we are defining ourselves by the things in creation that we can have. In this tension between over-excess or starving the flesh or just taking pride in that I can have something while you take pride in the fact that you can't have it, we see how easy it is, how the temptation lurks for all of us to put our assurance and our pride in our flesh, in our work, how we have tasted and touched what God has made to boast in the flesh. It is so easy to go from one side to another thinking that we have found the opposite when we are still living a fleshly gospel. The solution to drunkenness is not campaigning against alcohol. The solution to anti-alcoholism is not proudly parading your pride in partaking. The solution is the gospel of grace alone by faith alone, through which we live to glorify God alone. In all that we do, in everything that we use, and through that, see a holiness that can be worked only by his spirit. The spirit can look at the good gifts in God's world, enjoy them to glorify the giver. The spirit would never abuse God's gift, never allow it to take God's place in our hearts. We can love food and drink and the arts and sex as evidence of God's goodness and not worship them, to desire to use them only according to his design. We can delight in the things God has made good and pleasing and steward them just as God told Adam to without being mastered by them as Adam was. We would hate to enslave ourselves to any of the stuff of this world, wouldn't we? We would hate to take pride and boast in how we use these things. You don't have to drink. You don't have to eat cheesecake. You don't have to like the theater. You don't have to listen to music. Take these things up or set them down. But whatever you do, do not judge yourself according to the flesh. Enjoy what God has made good. See what God has made pleasing and do so only to the glory of God who made us all good things to enjoy. This list of works of the flesh is not exhaustive. Paul's main point is that all of us would look at the fruit, would look at the evidence which reveals whether we are living according to our own gospel, seeking assurance, desiring to boast in ourselves. To show us that putting our confidence in what we handle and taste and touch, to putting our confidence in ourselves and the things of this world, will leave us enslaved, often to the very sins we're trying to regulate or repress. This is a warning to each of us, as we all know, every single one of us knows what it means for the flesh to war against the spirit. 
In that battle, do not give in to the temptation to change your view of God, to change your view of the world or the gospel. Don't change it to give special license to your flesh, to just end the war by letting your flesh become a worshiper of the things of this world. And don't change the gospel to take pride in starving it. Be warned, every fleshly gospel, anti-law, legalistic, liberal, conservative, any gospel that defines our holiness by what we handle and taste and touch will leave us outside the kingdom of God. This is Paul's warning, and it's a warning he says he wants to repeat often because we're so prone to forget it. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Strong warning. It fits in with the rest of Paul's strong language in Galatians. False gospels or changes to the gospel will tempt all of us. And our own battle against the flesh may be the reason why we find them so tempting. A new rule, a new method, a new prohibition, a new allowance that makes us feel like we can end the war with sin. That tells us you'll finally conquer it or that it was, it was wrong to ever call it a sin. Our heart is so tempted. I think I could rest in this. I think I could take my assurance from it. Paul is aware of the prevalence of this temptation in the Galatian church. It's potential to take hold of our heart. Just like Jeremiah with God's people so long ago, there is this temptation to turn from our overindulgence with sin to boasting in the flesh and so live in the same fleshly way we were living in when we overindulged and continue to just show rotten fruit. Friends, how long have we kept clinging to our pride in our flesh? Even after it has clearly started showing rotten evidence, how long do we persevere in the lies that we have told ourselves after we have clearly seen that this is the work of the flesh that is manifested in those who do not inherit God's kingdom? Recognize this evidence now before it leaves you forever enslaved to sin and cast away from God's kingdom in hell. Do you look at this list of evidence and see that you are in danger of not just living a life where the flesh wars against the spirit, but just living and walking according to your flesh? That you've been feeding your sin or taking pride and boasting In your works. In this fight against sin, the gospel of grace doesn't seem like enough. Just telling me that Jesus took the punishment for my sin, that my sin is forgiven, that's not enough to conquer the desires of the flesh. You seem to agree with Paul's opponent in Romans that if we allow people grace, sin will just abound. But the gospel is the only way, not only that our record is wiped clean, but the whole fleshly man is put to death with Christ. And we are regenerated by the spirit to live the life of the spirit. And he is our helper. Jesus promised that. Our best perfect helper in the war against the flesh. He is enough for whatever evidence of the flesh you see in yourself. 
He is able because of the power of what Christ accomplished on the cross, not to make us perfect in this life, lest we be proud in ourselves, but to make sin our enemy, to walk by the spirit and so do battle against the flesh and to delight in walking by the spirit because the glory for what we do goes alone to God and all of our good works are fruit of his spirit in us. As Paul said earlier in this book, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That life of faith is one which we enjoy. The daily help of the Holy Spirit who conforms us to the image of Christ. To that end... Jesus gave us means of the Holy Spirit's work. He gave us good gifts in his creation through which his Holy Spirit can work faith in us to strengthen our trust in him and the gospel. The Lord's Supper is one of those gifts to God's people. This is one of those sweet, ordinary ways that the Spirit works, that it works faith in us, not simply so we would rest in what Christ accomplished, so that we can trust that what Christ has finished, he will continue to apply in us. And that this work will one day finally be completed to God's glory. To take the cup and the bread is to say, I trust in the blood spilled, the body broken, the death that paid the price for my sin to put my old man to death. When he died, I was put to death with him so that I might be raised in newness of life. By taking this together, we, tr- we, we declare our trust in that gospel alone. That is our only hope. We remind each other of this hope so that none of us would put our trust in anything else to live according to the flesh, to try and boast in the flesh. We proclaim it to each other and to the world until he comes again. And the works of flesh are finally, totally, completely abolished. And we will forever enjoy the fruit of what the Holy Spirit has worked in God's people, that sweet gift to all those who are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Trusting in Jesus alone, let's share in this supper together. I'd like to call the elders forward.